Are we going to do a show this week? Sure, let's do one. Okay. This uh, is the show. We have an email from listener Adam. Okay, tell me. Hit, hit, hit me with it. Hit, uh, but, but, I was going to... Uh, but, uh, <laughs> 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 the stupidest law professor show <laughs> that, there, that there is. Um, let me just read this to you. Okay. He says... We responded to his feedback last week in our We did, and it was about show. the you know teaching the Supreme Court and teaching con law in law school, and I reacted with some. Um, <laughs> I thought you overreacted, but that's but I repeat myself. The Supreme he says the Supreme Court's position on patent law is a good example of the Supreme Court applying law and a good thing to teach, but that example sidesteps the question of how to deal with law blurring into politics, uh, and th- that. It, it is a, I think he, his observation is a sound observation, uh, and, and it only serves to underscore the inanity of his original question, um, oh which is, which is to, which is to try to make, you were totally nuts, which is to try to get the Venn diagram of, you know, Supreme Court activity and law and the way it, uh, bleeds into politics, Venn circle to be completely coincident. They're not. Right. There are law at the law bleeding into politics issues that are in the lower courts. There are Supreme Court things that don't exemplify that phenomenon. So, yeah, the thing to talk about, of course, is that phenomenon in itself. To that degree, uh, the issue he raises is a very important issue. Indeed, it goes to the very heart of what you want a legal education to be. Yeah, I, I, I took his his comment to be suggesting that something very different is going on in much Supreme Court adjudication, which is unlike other courts. And what would law school be like without that? And does it make, does the study of the political side of the Supreme Court kind of somehow infect and make worse the understanding of other bits of law? And you cite patent law as an example where the Supreme Court has, in your view, played a positive role and has done maybe more lawyer-like work. But is that sui generis? Is what in, he including raises. policy yeah, work and policy, not just the... Yeah. the sort of very, very narrow bands interpreting a, an ambiguous phrase. So maybe instead of not teaching at all, one, one, one thing you could do is, is segregate. You know, if, if you think like Posner does, that the Supreme Court is not really a court, right? Talk about court-like things in, in some classes and whatever it is that the Supreme Court is in another class. And maybe con law classes mix the two together. Maybe, maybe they don't. I don't know. I'm just talking off the top of my head right now. I, this is going to take some more thought. Yeah, what would civil procedure, though, be without the... Uh, a, a, a universal first year course, right? What, what would it be if it never broached the subject of jurisdiction and the complex constitutional questions involved in jurisdiction? I think a lot. Is that law? Is that politics? Is it policy? Is it, you know, what is it? A um, lot less shoes and broken down Volkswagens. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, Should be fewer shoes. Can you wall that off? All right, we'll come back to this. We'll come back to this. All right, we got to get our. uh, Is there anything else for today? I don't think so. Boy, send us some feedback. We we need the feedback. Oral argument podcast. It all came in at once, and now it's gone. It's gone quiet, hasn't it? Yeah. The calm before the storm. It waxes. Oral argument podcast at gmail dot com. Oral argument on Twitter. Oral argument on Facebook. Uh, you know what else is there to say? Let's Let's call our, our guest. Yeah, let's call our awesome guest who we're lucky to have with us again today. Welcome, Amanda Frost. We're so lucky to have with us for uh, the second time. Yeah, I'm honored to be here a second time. The so. second coming of Amanda. Yes. Yeah. Uh, on a different topic this time. Christian, how would you describe the 
the question in the Roe against Gibson case that we're going to try to figure out. Well, there's Amanda's paper that we're going to uh, that and, too. and then there's the case. And, and your paper is not quite about exactly the issue in in uh, the Roe case. Uh, this is the one. Written by Posner and uh, who was in dissent? Uh, Judge Hamilton. Concurring and dissenting. And there was a, a back and forth we'll get into. Super, super, really interesting. Really interesting case but, from but, a few weeks ago. Okay. So, Amanda, your paper is in a nutshell, the one we're going to talk about, um, mm-hmm. about um, the the obligation of courts to stick to the presentation of the law uh, made by the parties. And the issue in this Posner opinion is whether judges can do their own internet research and kind of put facts out there uh, that are not uh, that are not in the record or brought up by the parties. Can they and, and more generally, can they kind of direct factual um, development or, or is it or should it just be up the, to the parties to do that? So there's a nice uh, presumably what you wrote about um, the, the party's responsibility to pre- to present the law and the judge's responsibility or not to allow the parties to control the presentation of the law. I imagine you'd have some things to say about this case as well. Yes, and I agree with you both that my article was um, focused on something a little bit different than that internet, independent internet research by the judges that went on in Roe versus Gibson, but also that there's overlapping concerns or problems. Um, And in fact, there's been a lot of interesting scholarship very recently about this very problem of of judges searching the internet. And my favorite uh, title is the article by Colleen Barger, um, on the internet, nobody knows you're a judge. That was a great <laughs> title for, for what's going on, which is that it's very tempting, I'm sure, for judges to just jump online and start looking up things that the parties haven't told them. So, so, that, it, so that article is not about judges in chat rooms then? <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I actually didn't read that article, but I did look at Allison or Larson has written an, a, a great article about Amiki raising facts and courts relying on them. So a little different than the judge doing it on their own, but the same yeah. concern about reliability. Um, and she actually, she ended up on the Colbert report talking about that, um, which struck me as amazing uh, that it came to his attention, but it's a great article. We'll have to put that in the show notes, the link to her appearance on the Colbert report. Yes. And, we, and we should get her as a guest. I mean, we're going to try to get her as a guest. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to say, I think I'm not, she might've been the better guest um, in light of in Roe versus Gibson, but too bad. Yeah. You're stuck with me. This is this is this is not a you know guests on here are not rival goods. So right, you know, just because you're on talking about this doesn't mean that she can't come on. I, I'd rather I, be on I, this podcast than on the Colbert. Oh, I, well, <laughs> well, I well now you can't be anymore. So I think everybody knows that, that this is uh, Colbert is a stepping stone to oral argument. Mm. Yeah, you know, it prepares you. It's good preparation because right. he's you know he's he's super smart. Right, and and your your argument will be tightened up quite a bit. Unfortunately, it's not in existence anymore. So, yeah. you know, I guess you just have to, you were just stuck with this You're show. Him. You're him. Exactly. Exactly. So, and by the way, the other article I should mention, just for anyone listening who's interested in the issue, is Brian, uh, Brian Gorod wrote an article, and I talked to her about it as she was writing it, actually. The Adversarial Myth uh, Appellate Court Extra Record Fact-Finding, which is very on point to the Roe versus Gibson case. But we should probably talk about maybe what happened in that case, and then I can also talk about how my article does... I think the concerns raised in my article are different in important ways from what the court did in that case. So we could. Yeah, I mean, so let, let's let's talk about the facts of that case. I don't know if it, you want me to do it, or, or do you want to do it, Amanda? Or yeah, why don't you take it? Why Okay, so this, yeah, and you should correct me because this is just from memory, and I, I've only read through it quickly once, so I, I'm liable to get stuff wrong. But um, but that only makes it more fun. Yeah. Uh, so you've got there's there's a prisoner. 
um, who has a an esophageal condition um, involving reflux, and it's a a more serious condition than most people who take Zantac, for example, have. Uh, it causes, at least uh, by his reports, a lot of pain. Has been diagnosed by uh, prison doctors uh, as having a condition that causes uh, quite a bit of pain, and. And it's chronic, so taking a medication uh, repeatedly over a long period of time is definitely what's going to have to happen to treat right. it effectively. So he was prescribed Zantac, and then, uh, and I think he was prescribed the prescription version of this for a while, right? And or or was he given the over the counter, but told he could take it whenever he wanted? I think for, the latter. I think. I think that's right. But it was under um, a doctor's discretion. I mean, under a doctor's uh, supervision. Yeah, yeah. and. And and inexplicably, at some point, the doctor, they withdrew this and told him he could take the, well, I think they withdrew it altogether. Just, I don't know, to see how it went. I forget what the description was in the case about why they withdrew it. But the doctor basically withdrew the ability to get this saying, I think, yeah, now I remember. They, uh, the doctor said that long-term taking this medication could be dangerous, but then at the same time told him he could buy the, he right. could buy the pills from the prison commissary. So you can still take them, but you have to now pay for them out of your account, out of the prison commissary, and maybe take them there in the commissary. I'm not sure. Uh, and anyway, uh, after I think about a month, I think this is a 33-day period where they basically withdrew the provision of these medications for him. Uh, they reinstated the medications, but told him he can only take them at meal times. And uh, actually, he he could only take them at times far removed from his meal times. Um, so he, the, his, his nine, it was at nine and nine. Right. But the, but okay, you're he, right. Yeah, he yeah, was yeah, on yeah, an yeah, eating schedule right. that was four and four. Four so, and four. I was going to get, I was so focused on the fact that the eating schedule was four and four. Right. Uh, which reminds me of our episode with Josh Lee. Right. About lights and mealtimes. And this is an example. And Posner kind of moves over this quickly, but not without remarking about it. Right. That breakfast is at 4 a.m. And then the second and only other meal of the day is at 4 p.m. Uh, I, of course, I read that and I'm wondering, why is the case not about that? <laughs> why is that? Why is the cruel and unusual punishment not about that? But skipping over that. Um, so, yes, he could only take the pills. At, I guess it was nine and nine, wasn't it? Something like that. So so it was five hours after the meal. Um, he sues, said, look, this is causing me tremendous amounts of pain. I need to take the Zantac in advance of the meal uh, or, or maybe prescription strength Zantac. I'm not sure exactly what he asked for. Um, that's maybe one of the issues in this case. Uh, and and the prison doctor, who was also the only expert witness in this case, uh, testified and maybe even told him in advance, I don't remember that, uh, that with Zantac, you just need to take it twice a day and it doesn't matter uh, when you take it, basically, that right. it's, it stays in your bloodstream and is as effective whenever. It turns out that if you go to the website of the manufacturer or to the Mayo Clinic's website, or I'm sure to any number of other websites, you find out that is not so. Uh, and in fact, that, or at least there's a basis for thinking it's not so. Uh, it's it, because some of the websites themselves say uh, our statements are qualified by the fact that medical professionals who know more details about your situation will be able to better tailor this to your situation. Right. So you should consult a medical professional, right? So the websites don't make the unqualified statements. Of course, they not. point to the role, the beneficial role 
of expert medical professionals in helping you tailor to your own circumstance. They just provide little or no basis for what the prison doctor said. That does seem clear. Right. right? And and they, and they indicate that uh, to to avoid pain, you should take the medications before meals. And I forget and, exactly. And close in time, not close before in time. as in 12 hours before, exactly. but before as in right about 15 before. minutes, something like that. Yeah. But if you know, if you know that you're going to eat something, it's going to say so. And for his condition, it seems like it was because of the rather extreme pain uh, caused by this um, esophageal condition that he had. Right. Uh, that, that you really wanted to take it in advance and that, in fact, it wasn't nearly as effective to take it. So anyway, this was not developed below. He had asked for the court appointment of an expert witness or some help in developing his case. Which was That rejected. was denied. Yeah, that request was denied. The only expert was the prison doctor who was also a defendant in the case. And the judge ruled and basically awarded summary judgment to the to the uh, uh, prison officials. And there were a number of other issues involving retaliation, but we're not going to focus on yeah. these other issues. No, this is the deliberate indifference standard to medical treatment conditions. Right. And, you know, had he met the standard of alleging the kinds of facts that would uh, constitute uh, an Eighth Amendment problem in in this medical treatment in prison, context. Yeah. So he alleges this is cruel and unusual punishment and violation of my constitutional rights. One way that the, that, uh, the Supreme Court has found that, that a prisoner can be subject to cruel and unusual punishment is for uh, prison officials um, to be deliberately indifferent uh, to uh, pain. Uh, and and proper treatment of severe right, medical conditions, right. which he has, so, or at least he alleged he had. Right. And if you think about it, I mean, that makes sense because we wouldn't, you know, if, if, you, if you imposed a sentence uh, that resulted in this kind of extreme pain, or you sentenced somebody not to receive medical treatment for a condition that would cause them pain, that would seem kind of outrageous. Right. And so to a, a, a post-conviction decision to deny someone treatment, thereby causing them pain, is violative of the of the Eighth Amendment. Right. So that's what this is about. And he doesn't get an expert witness. The only expert witness is the doc who makes claims and is also a defendant. Uh, about the that seemed contrary to what you would find if you did a minimal amount of internet research. Um, the Seventh Circuit then gets the case on appeal, and Posner reverses, suggesting problems with the way this. And we can talk about what those problems are. But among other things, he goes onto the internet. He goes onto the Mayo Clinic site. He goes onto the uh, physician manufacturer of Zantac, right. uh, their their website, and finds uh, finds lots of evidence that this guy needs you know, uh, better access to Zantac finds no justification or very little justification for what the uh, defendant physician said below and reverses. And so, and then there's a dissent, a concurrence and dissent, but the in relevant part here, it's a dissent uh, suggesting that this was totally improper, right? That, that the, the, the judge should be let, should only uh, rule on facts in the record unless the judge can take what's called judicial notice of facts. And we can get into what that is. Uh, here, it was neither of those things. These were facts not in the record, nor were they the proper subject of so-called judicial notice. And everyone seems to agree about that. All three judges in, who sat on this appellate panel, they all seem to agree these are not facts of which judicial notice could be taken under the relevant standard. Right. And Posner defends this uh, approach by suggesting that the Internet research did not, in fact, play a decisive role, that the testimony of the um, – uh, of the prisoner suggesting that he was experiencing severe pain, coupled with the testimony of the prison doc, that those two things together didn't result in a 
case in which no reasonable jury could conclude that the uh, uh, that the plaintiff shouldn't win. I know that's a lot of negatives in there, but the right. but the summary judgment standard is basically you know when you have all the evidence before trial, could a reasonable jury possibly you know are are there issues that could sway a, a reasonable jury either way? If, if not, if 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 based on the evidence there at the time of uh, before trial no reasonable jury could rule for A or for B, then you give summary judgment to B or to A uh, respectively. Yeah. yeah. So that's where we are. Uh, I don't know. Do, do you guys want to – I don't know if that was a good explanation or not. <laughs> not. Not until I listen to it back will I realize right. whether it's coherent. Yeah, so Amanda, explain, explain what was bad about what Christian just did. Yeah, nothing was, nothing's bad about what Christian just said except I would just emphasize a couple of things about this case, which is I think this is a really unusual case. So – we have the general problem of judges being tempted to go on the internet and search out facts. And we have sort of related problems of uh, amicus involvement where they're inserting new facts into a record at the appellate stage or the, even you know up to the Supreme Court. The, the, these and, are people, amicus, of course, are people who are not parties, but, yeah. uh, but uh, suggest that they will be helpful to the decision in the case and have an interest in the case because of their organizational positions or what Friends have you. Friends of the court, so-called. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and courts will take their briefs in order to learn more about the case. And uh, in fact, uh, Alison Orr Larson's article said that one in every five citations by the Supreme Court to an amicus brief is for the factual uh, information it provides. And so they, they seem to be a very active role in adding and injecting new facts. There's a, a third issue that actually at some point I want to talk about, which is the parties either trying to add facts at the 11th hour or just simply being unreliable, including there's some really interesting recent examples of the U.S., uh, the Solicitor General's office itself confidently telling the court about things that the government will and will not do uh, that are just wrong and based on very little. So there's a whole, you know, sort of set of problems about unreliable facts. But I want to say about this case, if there was ever a case (laughs) for looking beyond the record and having the judge do a little bit of internet research to say, look, there's enough here to support you know, further development of this case. And maybe I would have thought point an expert or a lawyer to help this um, pro se prisoner out. This is the case. And there's a couple of reasons. One, he's a pro se litigant. And pro se litigants do, there is a tradition of saying we're not going to act in the typical adversarial manner with a pro se litigant. And, and by this, that, this is just a litigant who is representing himself. Representing himself. Yeah. Um, so when someone is representing themselves, the courts, courts typically, when there's two lawyers involved and no one's representing themselves, the court's view is, well, it's an adversarial system. We let these two lawyers go at it and we don't help either side and we see where they stand at the end of this and who's convinced us. When there's a pro se litigant, someone who's representing themselves, who's not a lawyer, there is a tradition of courts saying we're a little more active. We're a little more careful. We want to make sure that the adversarial system works and we don't think it'll work if one party is outgunned because they don't have a lawyer. So already we have that as sort of a background principle and that's in this case. Then we add in that he's a prisoner. And I'm not sure what his access to the internet was, but (laughs) he may well have been quite limited in his ability to get any information at all. And of course, he he asked for an expert or legal representation to be appointed for him, and he was not provided that. And then the third really egregious fact in this case that, that makes me think maybe it warrants an exception, even if you're generally opposed to judges doing outside internet research, which I think I sort of am. In this case, we have the expert witness being the defendant which is just bizarre. And I mean, Posner says that. And I mean, I don't know if it's never happened before, but it strikes me as bizarre and really entirely improper. Um, So that really allowed the defendants to have an enormous advantage in this litigation 
And it struck me that Posner just kind of wanted to put a thumb on the scale in favor of the, of the plaintiff. And that what he really wanted to do was kind of alert the district court. Look, there's a lot out there that shows this guy has some good claims. You need to take his claims seriously. So that it would go back down with maybe a more a judge willing to be less skeptical. I think, and I think judges are very skeptical of prisoners' Eighth Amendment claims. So yeah. that was my reading of, of why, why Posner went on and on about the internet searches, even though he says he didn't need to to reach the result he did. And I think one thing that's that's especially interesting about the the context of these particular jurists being involved in this particular appeal is these judges are all very experienced judges. Judge Posner has been on the Seventh Circuit for quite a while. Judge Rovner, similarly, has been on this, uh, the court for quite a while. She's She writes in concurrence and, in a sense, is saying, look, this, this dust-up between Posner and Hamilton, I really don't want any part of it because, for me, I see that there's a genuine issue and, therefore, the trial court erred even without this Internet research, right? Which raises the interesting question, is everything Judge Posner says dicta? But now, Judge Hamilton, he's very experienced in part because he was a, because he served as a district court judge for a long time. And so his taking on the district court judge's perspective in his dissent, in a way, he's speaking from his own experience. Hey, I was a district court. I was trying to sort through cases. He doesn't say it in those words, but we know that about him, right? That he knows what it's like from... Posner has himself sat as a trial court judge, even though he's on the Seventh Circuit. So there's just an enormous amount of judicial experience being brought to bear in this very interesting set of facts. And it's, I think it's, yes, there's a lot of experience being brought to bear. And in this case, I mean, you could say that it, that it could just be decided on the ground that there's, there's the defense saying one thing, right? And the fact that the defense is an expert is perhaps some additional weight on its side. And then there's the plaintiff making a subjective statement about his own pain, right? And the defense is saying you can't, you aren't really feeling that pain because this is effective. And the plaintiff's saying, yes, I am feeling that pain and this is not effective and there's a more effective thing. <coughs> Coupled with the fact that the, at one point, the defendant himself said, this is dangerous to take long term, but you can buy it from the commissary makes you uh, that fact makes you makes one kind of doubt that there's real medical right precision going on here so what so i'm i'm sympathetic to posner's citing this evidence partly because i imagine i'm a i'm a juror which is and and imagining the position of the juror is part really of the exercise of thinking about summary judgment so you imagine you're the juror and the only evidence you really hear is from this defendant doctor who's being sued who says yeah, it's just as effective if you take this every 12 hours. It doesn't matter when, so long as you're taking it, it you know, have the titration in your blood, et cetera. It just, it just works. And there's, so this guy's not being honest about it, right? And then the uh, plaintiff gets up and says, you know, I'm in a lot of pain. And I wasn't in a lot of pain back when I was able to take this pill uh, before meals, right? And, and then the judge says, okay, you've heard the witnesses, jurors. Go back and, and figure out what happened here. <laughs> and as a juror, you're like, wait, what? I mean, isn't there, isn't there right. an answer to these questions? Like, why, why am I being and asked? All, but that's where I actually, I mean, I think I'm going to come down on the side of being critical in most cases of judges looking at the internet to supplement the facts. Because as we all know, you know, you say how frustrating it is to be a juror and hear these two conflicting things and not have all the information you want. But that's, 
first of all, that's the nature of the judicial process, and maybe we should talk about that more, but I think that is the nature of the judicial process. There's some evidence you admit, and I'm sure jurors are left wanting more every time. But second, a lot of factual questions don't have a clear answer. It really depends, right? And these judges go out and look on the internet and think they found an answer. And while I am very sympathetic to the use of the internet in this case, and it may fall within sort of a pro se prisoner litigant exception, caveated further by the expert used by the judge and relied on by the judge was a defendant, you know, that makes this so sympathetic. But think about how this would play out in case after case after case. And I don't trust that judges should be jumping on the internet and trying to find the answers to questions without the adversarial system helping them to vet that data. It's just too easy to go wrong. And there's and there's also the concern that if you have if you set up a situation where there's there is definitely a genuine issue of fact when when all you have on the plaintiff's side of the case is the subjective report of pain without an objective anchor to try to establish whether that's a reasonable assertion for the plaintiff to have made, right? Um, they might be thinking, oh gosh, here come all the meritless claims that, yeah. we're, that we're going to have to manage somehow, but we've just deprived ourselves of a tool for managing them, yeah. which is, we've said, that's automatically a tribal issue. Now, of course, that isn't what this panel said, because that uh, the mere subjective report of pain is not all that is happening on this record. But I, it does peek through as a concern, I think, in, in Judge Rovner's concurrence, again, which is very brief. And you can see her trying to follow the more traditional route here of saying, what's this record? What's particular about this case? We're not saying just by saying you had pain, you get to a jury, right? I don't, I mean, there's not much more to it than what you describe as inadequate. I mean, there's the subjective testimony about pain. There is the evidence about the drug taking that had occurred before it was withdrawn. Yeah, well, that's important, that right? It is somewhat important, and with, I think. With, with respect to this particular chronic condition, the fact that this very doctor had said, you know, n n no, you can't have it in your cell uh, and we're not going to provide it to you, but you can go buy it if you want. Right. That, see, that's the evidence right. which that is, makes uh, you Which distrust. is sort of incoherent, right? What, what if he had never said that? So, so, so that bit of evidence makes you distrust. It, it would lead a reasonable juror to think twice about what the doctor is yeah. saying and whether this person is really Because it seems like the doctor or, isn't being a doctor as much as he's being a prison official who's trying to minimize costs or something like that. Yeah, exactly. But obviously what went wrong here, I mean, think about how you would litigate this case if you were his lawyer. You would have found an expert or at the very least gotten lots of data about Zantac and when it should be taken. And surely you would have found things to support the conclusion it should be taken at mealtimes, right? right? So the problem was that the adversarial system didn't work because the, pro the litigant was pro se and a prisoner. It's not that it would normally not work. I mean, normally I do think we would expect a lawyer to produce that kind of data for the client to be provided before summary judgment and to defend against summary judgment. Yeah, I think no normally the case would probably settle because the behavior was so egregious, right? <laughs> and, and because he's pro se, they didn't have to, especially once they kill off the chance for right. an expert witness. But what, but what would help it settle is you'd have an expert report on each side. You'd, you'd have depositions after those reports where the lawyer for the plaintiff 
makes manifest all the shortcomings in the defendant's expert report and in and so you would know that at trial that's what will be presented to the fact finder and that makes it much easier to figure out ah okay we should just figure out the number here because there's no need for a fact finder now that's why i'm a little worried about this case because i don't think it should stand for the proposition that internet research generally speaking is appropriate for a judge to engage in I think it's that we're dealing with a really terribly, a really unfair situation in which someone with no access to outside information and could only report on his pain was, you know, being denied his ability to go forward. And the judges sort of looked around and saw that, that if he had the resources to litigate this case properly, he wouldn't have lost a summary judgment. So I don't, I just would hate to see this case being cited as an example of, oh yes, judges generally speaking should feel free to jump on the internet and do their own research. I think the dangers of that, and we could talk about that more if you want. Yeah, let's, because what is the danger of that? Well, well, What's I wanna, so, let me yeah. just ask, here's what I think Posner is thinking, okay? okay? I, you know, so Posner gets this case and <laughs> sees what happened uh, below and is thinking to himself, I think, I mean, you know, <laughs> trying to read the mind of Posner is like, he has a very... Uh, he, has, he has a very sharp mind, so yeah, maybe he's thinking like 13, and he's pretty candid levels. too. So he may be thinking thirteen dimensions above or beyond. One fair thing. enough, but yeah. uh, but he's thinking there are some obvious factual questions that any reasonable person would want to know in order to resolve this case. Those were not answered or even attempted uh, uh, to be answered below, and in a way, he's like I think angered by the by the negligent fact finding, which in a pro se case he thinks was probably. It, you know, the judge certainly had an opportunity to f- further to develop the record because he could have appointed an, an expert witness. Uh, the judge didn't do that. And so there was I think there's a whiff of, of true negligence in what in, in the doing of what a court is supposed to do below. To be fair to the district court judge, it's not the typical case in which you appoint an expert and give a lawyer to a pro se prisoner. And there are a lot of pro se prisoner cases. I mean, you know, there was a reason for the Pr- Prison Litigation Reform Act. They are litigious. So, right. and I'm a big, I mean, I represented prisoners. I'm a very sympathetic person, but I'm understanding why the district court did not think that he should immediately go out and appoint somebody to help this guy. I just think it's a problem with the system that we don't, that, that we have people at such a disadvantage in the litigation. You know, and there's a theme in, if you look at yeah. the, um, the many times that Judge Posner has denounced the work product of uh, various boards of immigration appeals, yeah. um, various uh, bureaucratic officials, and I, he, there's a there's a sense in which he's he's sort of sitting in his studio, hand carving furniture and barking about how everyone else is buying, you know, folding chairs at Target, uh, and it's and it's getting him peeved, right? Why aren't you all at home hand carving your furniture? If you would do that, you would see that there are all these very sophisticated ways to cope with the issues, right? And so there's, it's an, there is an odd kind of disconnect, uh, which is especially odd given that he himself has written two different editions of a book about the federal courts in crisis. Well, right. Well, that that managing the the bureaucratic workflow of a of a massive institution handling thousands of claims a year is it means there are you you can't always spot this particular thing. And yet I'm I myself found his sort of in a way saying we need to slow our roll here and do right by this guy. He's been he, 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 it seems like there's a very plausible story that he's been wronged in an important way, subjected to physical pain needlessly, because this 
guy at the prison's being a jerk. And that's not right. And he's in our control. We have to care for him. So we need to slow down long enough to figure out how to do that properly. Like, that makes sense to me, too. Well, you know, so it's interesting. I want to just point out here, I was rereading my article in preparation for this. And I had quoted Posner, who uh, is my article is more about whether judges should raise legal issues and, right. inter- and, and questions that the parties have not raised. And I quoted him where he was he refused to raise an overlooked and winning legal issue for a party <laughs> whose lawyer dropped the ball. And in doing so and refusing to do that and saying, I will, I note here a winning legal issue, but I refuse to raise it because the party's lawyer didn't. He said, we cannot have a rule that in a sympathetic case, an appellant can serve us up a muddle in the hope that we or our law clerks will find somewhere in it a reversible error. So that's a little inconsistent with what he did in this case. No, was that a represented? Make, that was a represented party. Exactly. Though, right? So that's why I'm saying. Well, so he might say saying. that makes all the difference in the world. Well, yes, but that's what I guess I've been trying to say, which is I do not want this case to be taken as. And he didn't say that clearly enough, I don't think, in this case, if that's what he was trying to say. But I wouldn't Mm. want this case to be taken as, generally speaking, courts should go out and do internet research. I think it's very specific to the pro se litigant problem. Well, I mean, what is the role of... Again, I see Posner saying that that any person of any reasonable curiosity would want to know certain things before concluding that there's no way the plaintiff could win this case, right? And, and, And it's inexplicable how that basic curiosity didn't move the district court at least to question um, the... Really? Inexplicable. Do we know what that district court's docket was? Do we know how many appeals like this, how many petitions like this they were seeing? From the perspective of this case, right? So one reason... But that's the problem, right? That's the challenge. One reason reason you might be negligent in any aspect of life is that you're trying to do too much with too little time, right? Fair enough. Right. And, and that may mean that your that your performance of a particular duty is negligent. I don't think it, I don't think saying that the district court was not sufficiently curious, didn't take an active enough role and 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 didn't develop the factual record well enough and didn't push the parties to do so. I think that's a statement about the fact of what happened in this case. It's a fact about the proceedings. It's not a moral judgment of the judge or even a ju- or even I think a judgment about the judge's competence because all of the reasons that you just gave might be the reasons why the judge couldn't do a great job here. Someone who otherwise might be a great judge, right? Right. Uh, and I don't take Posner's uh, opinion here to be a rebuke of the judge's inherent abilities no. or intelligence or no. anything else. It's just that boy, this, this case was, was lousy, right? It was, but, you know, we're assuming this internet research that they did was accurate and correct, and it may well be. I think we're all very sympathetic to the prisoner. But I, the problem I see with this is the judge went out, found new internet, you know, internet data that he starts citing and saying to, justifies uh, denying summary judgment. It might well be the case that if it had been presented in an adversarial fashion, the defendants could have easily explained away what appeared at first glance on the internet to be facts supporting the plaintiff. And, and that's why it would be improper to grant summary judgment for the plaintiff on this, on this record, right? But the, the internet research that Posner did supports the view, which would be sufficient on its own, that the defendant's testimony was untrustworthy um, on this medical judgment. And the plaintiff's testimony about his subjective pain had some credibility, which uh, which was bolstered by the internet research, but maybe it, w- it was enough to give the appellate panel some confidence that some exercise of additional curiosity could have made things come out a different way uh, below. It almost sounds in due process. It, like the, 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 
I mean, I'm not a civil procedure scholar. I don't teach the class, but it, it, it seems like the summary judgment mechanism, which is, you know, let's look at the facts uh, that are in the record and see if there's a genuine issue of material fact. Um, th- that isn't the best way to grapple with what's problematic in this case, because the thing that's problematic is the concatenation of events that have led to a paucity of facts in the record that the court at the trial level could have used standard tools to try to address, right? Right. Um, that that prisoner row isn't in a position to do as effectively unaided, right? And so the real problem is denying that request for assistance, yeah, which Roe made and the district court denied, right? That's the problem. It's not so much that summary judgment wasn't properly granted had there been uh, an adequate opportunity for two parties to both have a full chance to put into the record the facts they needed. Well, it it pushes us toward... But that sounds more in due process to me. And that observation, I think, pushes us toward what makes this case so interesting. And that is like the the basic question of what are we trying to do here? What is the purpose of this proceeding? What is the purpose of this this lawsuit exactly? And that also connects with Amanda's uh, paper on you know, judges kind of bringing up areas of law, which the parties hadn't brought up. And you, you say this, uh, you just, um, you wrote this kind of beautiful paragraph in here, um, which I'm going to read. Is that all right? Can I do cool. that, uh, Amanda? Um, you say, but perhaps the problem is with the adversary theory itself, at least in its purest form. First, it appears best suited to a judicial system that is focused on dispute resolution and seems less relevant for a legal system in which the judiciary is also charged with issuing accurate accurate pronouncements about the meaning of law that bind future litigants. Uh, Now, that may not be as relevant here. But second, even as a method of dispute resolution, adversary theory falls short if the parties are mismatched or if both simply fail to grasp the essential legal and factual questions at the heart of their case. These defects have been widely noted before, and perhaps for that reason, the U.S. legal system has never been perfectly adversarial, as this article demonstrates. Nonetheless, the adversary system as an ideal type has a strong hold on juries on, on jurist conception, uh, jurists' conception of their own role. Um, and I threw in some extra words there; probably didn't read it perfectly. But um, and then you go into how like truth seeking is a it could be a goal. Uh, impartiality of judges is something that could be questioned if judges yeah. start to develop cases on their own, uh, and it interferes with uh, litigant autonomy. And it, it raises this question of what the goal of a trial proceeding for uh, is. Is it is it about producing something which parties accept or the rest of us accept? Is it getting at the truth? Is it a combination of those things? And it seems like once you know the goal then you then you can do or or the or the right allocation among competing goals then maybe you could do a reasonable cost benefit analysis of putting effort into this or that or trading off this value for that value and that's kind of what you try to do in that paper about law i think uh and and judicial development of the law uh regardless of what the parties do isn't that same sort of thing happening here and and what would you say i mean would you look at it differently because it's facts in terms of what our goals are in factual development a little bit in that i think what was at stake in my what i was describing in the uh limits of advocacy article you were just reading from was the fact that when judges pronounce on the meaning of law that pronouncement if they're appellate courts and even if they're district courts in the sense that it's it's out there as persuasive precedent but appellate courts are binding on lower courts and they are actually doing more than to resolving the dispute between the parties. They are telling all of us what the law is and doing so in a way that binds the lower courts. 
And so I think it becomes more important then to get it right. (laughs) It goes beyond the parties. And we can't think of judges as only dispute resolvers. They're also declarers of law. That really isn't at stake, as far as I can tell, in this uh, case we've been discussing, Roe versus Gibson in the Seventh Circuit. That's much more about getting the decision right, accurate, finding the facts as they are, and, and you know, justice, basically, making sure justice is served. That is also, of course, very important, even though it's just about this one prisoner. It's very important. And, and so I, in that paragraph, was sort of, even though that wasn't the focus of my article, I was pointing out, look, the adversary system fails us all the time, and we really shouldn't be so purist about it. And I mean, I think that fits with what we've been discussing. In a case like this, where the adversary system is breaking down badly because you have a pro se prisoner, we shouldn't hold the judges to the same maybe stringent limits on what they can do in terms of extrajudicial, extra record uh, evidence as we would in another kind of case where the adversary system works fairly well. So, Amanda, do you think it was a good thing or a bad thing that Judge Hamilton yeah. was as thorough and detailed in, in, his, um, in his rejection of the Posner approach here? I think it was good that they were very thoughtful, that the... the Concurring and dissenting judges were very, uh, were pointing out all the problems with internet research. I thought, if I criticize Posner at all, it's just that he would seem a little blithe about it, a little like, yeah, so then I looked around the internet, look what I found, you know, um, without really acknowledging that this could be a problem. I mean, if you want to, it's pretty easy to do a thought experiment and think about it. If it's a problem, I could imagine a judge who is, you know, pro-life in uh, his sort of personal approach deciding to do a little research to see how terribly women feel after they have abortions and all the remorse and how horrible it is for them. And guess what? He could find a lot of evidence on the internet of that. <laughs> and I really wouldn't want that to be cited and relied on in a case trying to decide what limits the state can put on a woman's ability to get an abortion. So I mean, pick your pet issue. If you're pro-gun rights, you could uh, easily imagine a judge doing internet research to show how uh, uh, you know, one shouldn't have a gun, you know, pick your political issue. I'm not trying to be on one side of the political spectrum or the other, but I just don't want this very sympathetic case to blind us to the fact that we should be careful and hesitant before we're comfortable allowing judges to run around on the internet. Because among other things, there's such a thing as confirmation bias. It's pretty easy to find just what you think you want to find when you look on the internet for it. Two two points here, because I'm not sure I'm as troubled by the examples yeah. that you gave, because I think it depends very much on the use of the of of the internet research. Um, and after all, I mean, even if they're not doing internet research, judges are on the internet for all kinds of things, and they receive all kinds of information, and that kind of makes them who they are, and makes and right. drives their intuitions. And but, we're not even talking about their clerks yet, who yeah, are right. also participating. Of course, in the process, yeah. so, so. For, forget about all that for a second, and just think about the use here. So, so two concepts. One is. Uh, is it really the case that um, could there be such a thing as factual precedent um, that fact finding in a case can in a way serve as a kind of precedent for future cases or future administrative action? And doesn't that take us to the same place that you ended up in your in your article? That's one point and I can expand on that. But but the second is uh, is the use. And so if the facts that a judge finds on the Internet um, provoke him or her to push the parties to discuss that issue or develop facts on the issue, I'm much less worried about that because I think judicial curiosity about these things and, and a little bit of knowledge can be, you know, as you know, can be super dangerous, but a little bit of knowledge that provokes others to speak to that disputed point seems to me a lot less dangerous. And just like Posner used these facts here, it wasn't to conclude as a, 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 as a factual matter, this happened or this didn't happen, or this is true, or this is not true. 
But what I found makes me wonder whether what happened below is adequate to answer the questions. And so let's go back below and think about this again and develop the record. It's not a replacement for the adversarial system, but it does provide some kind of uh, a minimum floor of factual curiosity that the appellate court is willing to accept, especially in a pro se case. So either of those, whatever you want to talk about is fine. But Well, so I was going to say, so in my uh, article, I do say that when a judge raises a new legal question or issue that the parties have not raised, that it's very important that the judge give the parties a chance to brief and argue that issue. So I agree with you. Maybe we could say if the judge is going to find facts that the parties haven't presented, we then it's very important that the parties have a chance to comment and weigh in on those facts. I did acknowledge, though, that that's going to slow things down, right? If every appellate court saying, look at some new facts, I want to hear the parties address them, or here's a new issue of law, I want to hear the parties brief that. You know, there's there's just, our system is is pretty strained as it is. I guess my question for you is, because you're sounding so positive about judges doing <laughs> internet research, I would say it's permissible in a case in which there's a pro se prisoner who's not been allowed to present an expert, right? Mm-hmm. Then I feel like, okay, I'm going to give the judges a little leeway to do a little factual research. I do the district court judge who could then get the parties to respond. But you know, even then I'm a little uncomfortable, but I'm okay with that. But it sounds like you are a fan of internet research in any case. That the parties haven't, you know, maybe done a very good job on. Uh, so know, I guess I'm asking where your limits are on this. Yeah, I, um, hmm. I, I, I certainly think, you know, one of the things that makes it seem to me okay in a case like this is that again, I, but I want to get away from a case like this. Yeah, no, no, I, I, it's that that doesn't necessarily operate in, in other cases, right? Is is that um, uh, there's kind of an inherent skepticism about. Um, you know, the factual development and, and that the internet research can kind of confirm, uh, that skepticism or rebut that skepticism and at least can help us figure out like, what is the right amount of investment in fact finding in this case, in a case where a pro se person has no, oftentimes might not have any kind of rational apprehension of what needs to be invested or the ability to invest in the kind of efficient level of fact finding given the case. Uh, whereas with private parties, you don't have, uh, with private lawyers or, or even with court appointed lawyers, maybe you don't have quite as much worry about that. So I'm trying to kind of think my way through, um, and and it's connected to the second idea of factual precedent. You know, what role will finding facts in this particular case or reaching an outcome based on facts play in future decisions, future cases, future administrative actions, so that the the facts don't just belong to these parties. In other words, if our goal is to create a result that people accept, then you, you might be led to conclude, as I think you're hinting, that so long as the parties have a fair opportunity to develop the facts uh, and, and the court uses its best appraisal of those facts to reach a result, that's likely to lead to an acceptable result to the parties, even if not their desired result. You know, they can't complain they didn't get a chance to introduce introduce facts. But where the the use of those facts doesn't belong only to the parties, uh, but will have future effects. And, and, you know, I don't think that that precedent only applies to law. I think there are instances where finding a fact will, in fact, lead, you know, district courts to find future facts in a particular way or will take that fact as given or et cetera. Then I maybe there's an increased role for for a a judge, whether district or appellate, to insist on a kind of a minimum level of factual curiosity. Uh, and that's what, I, you know, Posner is a naturally very curious person. And I think bristles at, you know, instances where the parties 
screw up in terms of developing facts that any reasonable person would want to know. And, and, and maybe, you know, if he had his, his, his druthers would want to play a more active role in doing that in all cases. But, but at least where our acceptance of, a, of an outcome in terms of facts um, depends not just on that case. It's not just about this case, but there's some important social dimension to it. And I don't think – so I'm hesitating because I don't think that that issue is alive only in pro se criminal defendant uh, – or uh, uh, um, prisoner cases. But it could be in other cases, too, which have a more public dimension. Um, and, and that's – I hesitate because I don't – you know, obviously I haven't done enough to write my own article about this. So yeah, I don't I know just, exactly I think what I think. you just have to keep in mind all the ways in which it could go wrong. Um, of course. But I will say that I also find it interesting that Posner, you know, in that uh, sentence I quoted you that I had quoted in my article – he was not willing to do that when he said, look, I, you know, this is, I, I ran it. Part of the reason I wrote my article is because I see judges, they were lawyers usually for years and years, litigators for years and years often. And they often love to come up with a new argument that no one's thought of because that's sort of what they did for all those years. And it makes them feel, I think, more creative or something. I've been in many oral arguments where a judge raises a brand new issue and looks very proud of themselves. Um, I think it's sort of human nature. But what's interesting is pose, and I think there should be limits on that, although I think I'm uh, I'm basically in favor, as my article says. But I thought it was interesting that Posner, in sort of diametrically opposed to both the curiosity that I think you're right he has, and also the position he took in the case we've been talking about, the Roe case, he says in this other case, well, the party let the lawyer let his party down. He missed a winning issue, and it's not our too bad, not our problem, not our job. We're not. It's not our job to get the law right and to raise you know, the legal issues you should have raised. So it's sort of, a, I have to say that statement, at least, it, you know, maybe taken out of context, maybe it would be different if you read the whole case, but it just looks to me like he was very inconsistent. In this case, he got a bee in his bonnet. And in the other case, he decided to, uh, you know, let, prevent justice from being served, right? If you think there was a winning legal argument and the only reason the party didn't win is his lawyer let him down, you know? Yeah. You could feel some sympathy for that. And I wrote in my article, I just think Posner was a little too quick to say we'll never raise a winning legal argument when we see one. Why but, not? But What's I the harm? Now, in that case, yeah. was it that the law – so, you know, maybe there are laws A, B, and C, and they come yeah. from statutes or from administrative – wherever or the Constitution, wherever. And uh, the party could have won had he or she cited law A, uh, but only relied on law B and C. And based on the facts, uh, the application of B and C meant the party lost. And Posner saying, hey, you should have cited law A and you could have won. That, if that's the case, it seems to me very different. And, and maybe you make this distinction in the article. And I, I, I think you do. But um, then to cite law B and say, hey, law B means that I win because of X, Y, Z. You know, in other words, I'm applying re interpretive reasons or or other kinds of reasons which show that that law should apply to my case. But in fact, all of those are, are wrong. But there's reason uh, Q. <laughs> that means that law uh, that 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 implies that that law B should help me win the case. Now, that's where maybe a judge could come in. I've yeah. cited the right law. I've just yeah. kind of given the wrong reasons. And if we allow the party yeah. uh, uh, to control that, then then. It, we mess it, up the law. We mess up the law, exactly. We and mess that's, up that's, law B. We mess without up law touching B. law A, right. which never got referenced. And that, right no, and I agree. And there's, yeah, a public interest in, there's a public interest in the right evolution and understanding of law B. So when yeah. Posner said what he said that you quoted in your article, was it yeah. was it was he talking about you didn't bring up a whole separate statute or a whole separate Yeah, it was a separate legal argument. So that's a good you know, it certainly is a good point. It wasn't going to mess up the law, but it did result in injustice in that one case, which is of course, in my view, the same problem in Roe, right? It wasn't like Roe was gonna mess up the law if right. the 
court. Although, of course, he, he highlighted the way in which the 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 lawyer for that party is 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 now exposed to a complaint by that party. So so he in fact actually made it yeah. easier for that person to recover in, for example, yeah. a malpractice action. Well, his rationale for the for, for refusing to rule in favor of the party after identifying a legal issue the party didn't raise, he said, I don't want to give lawyers an incentive not to be good lawyers. But actually I thought that was a pretty weak rationale because lawyers, you know, it's not like they're gonna if he had, if he was willing to look at these extra extra legal issues he'd noticed, it's not like the next lawyer would be like, Well, I can be I can lie back on my laurels and don't really have to brief this case very well because I know Judge Posner will win it for me. Right. You know, I just don't see that being. I don't see the disincentive. He there, saw. there can be kind of sandbagging, though. I mean, the the, yeah. the 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 purpose of forfeiture rules, right, is that you can't um, you can't fail to mention something and then bring it up in, in a cheaper context. Yeah. Like it, you know, it's right. it's much cheaper to add a few paragraphs to a brief than it is to develop a trial strategy around those things, right? Yeah. And so. You so know, waiver you, really does need to exist and have some bite, I think. Forfeiture, at least. Yeah. And waiver, too. Yeah. yeah. yeah and, 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 and yeah, so that I could understand that. Um, and it obviously applies with less force in a case where the, the party asked for help developing facts and the judge says, I'm sorry, you can't yeah. have help developing the facts. And Posner's like any person would want to know those facts. Like yeah. the person asked you to be more curious. And yeah. here you are refusing to indulge the curiosity that any reasonable person would have in the, in these cases. And that's why, you know, I think what Posner's saying is like, there's a very simple way to find these things out. Why didn't you do it? It's a, it's the same as this case where he puts on, you know, was, he was uh, derided for uh, donning and doffing. Is that the, those are the right words? The protective suits, you know, yeah. in this case. Yeah. And it's like, you know, there's, this is a reason, like, it, forget everything else, forget law, forget everything. Like, but if there's this dispute in a society about this issue, about how long it takes to put on protective yeah. gear, right? And we won't go into the details of it because we don't have time. But if there was this dispute, like any reasonable person would say, well, let me try to put those on and then ask another, is there a faster way yeah. to put it on? Is there this? Or th-? And no one did that. And he's like, well, you know, screw it. Let's, <laughs> let's do this, at least for some sanity checking here, at least to yeah. figure out it, are the arguments we're getting even within the range of right. sense? Because I have a lot of experience, you may be thinking, with lawyers who are ignoring very common sense ways to, to get at uh, disputes. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah. I, th- I think you and I should keep talking about this, even though Amanda needs to go. Yeah, unfortunately, I do have to run. Um, but thank you for including me. And um, uh, you should get Ali Larson, Ali, Allison or Larson to come on your show and Talk we're about gonna, we're gonna try to do that. Yeah. We will try. I think the easiest way for me to do that is to give uh, Stephen a call, and um, and I'll try to try to book her through Stephen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Colbert, uh, have Colbert. fun, guys. Oh, Bye. Stephen Colbert. Yeah. Right. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. So it sounds like par- p- part of what it sounds like part of what you're saying is, um, he is uh, he's experiencing moments where he recognizes he can say, let's debureaucratize this for a moment. Let's just be human beings and think about what we're in the middle of talking about. And there are some things we'd naturally want to know. Is there a way to find them out? Oh, look, there is this way to find them out. Let's use it. Mm-hmm. Right. Stop being so all of you stop being so formal about stuff. Be a right. little bit more pragmatic, be a little less bureaucratic. Right. Uh, and, and just l- look at what's in front of us. Right. And that can help us cut through some noise, some, senseless mistakes right and expense and I mean, expense kind of, the, the of flip course side of what amanda's uh, saying right so, that, right yeah. so i think i mean i think that's quite true um and i w- and what's fascinating to me as i read this is that i think what judge hamilton says is equally true which is that i get it in this individual instance yet we have a system that does have to operate 
And so, for example, district court judges need to know what it means that the appellate court whose legal holdings they must follow just did this, right? People need to know what it means that there is now apparently a third category of evidence, right? Not in the record, not subject to judicial notice. Let's just say, I, we mentioned this at the beginning, judicial notice is, you know, where a court can doesn't have to have evidence subject to the adversary process of whether the sun rises in the east and sets right, in the there, west. I mean, but, so these facts... But there is the, a federal rule of evidence yes. that governs whether or not that is usable in a given dispute. And, right. And it has rigors. And those rigors have to be satisfied. These, and, these are facts which would be basically undeniable. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, and all of the jurists in this case agreed that wasn't applicable. Right. So I think Judge Hamilton is right to say we are looking at a middle case, right? It is neither introduced by the parties, nor is it properly the subject of judicial notice. It is instead this other stuff. And that would be that would be compelling if the result depended on the internet research. It, and it did not. Or the result did not depend on the internet research. And then the question well, is, well, we why certainly is know there? that's true for Judge Rovner, right? Because she says that and explains yeah. her conclusion in and, that and regard. And Posner says so in the appendix as well. He does. Uh, so, so it's clear that the result did not depend on the internet research. And so, so then the question is, why is it? Why there? is there at all? Why is it useful? They, clearly, they got in enough of a dispute. I mean, Posner drags out Magna Carta for goodness' sake, <laughs> right? Uh, this sort of wellspring of Anglo-American uh, liberty and self-government. And it's like, okay, well, this clearly this is significant. So if it doesn't, if it doesn't, if it isn't actually important to resolve this dispute about whether summary judgment was appropriate, well, then what on earth is it doing there at all? Why not just say, eh, you're right. I didn't need to bring it up. Why talk about it? Do you have a because thought it, about that? Or I, think, I think it, in this case, one, it signals the kind of things that should happen below, the kind of curiosity that the district judge should have had. The reasons why granting the uh, request for an expert witness and not just relying on the defendant slash expert expert witness would have been a good idea. Um, so would and, it have been and better? It shows the, would, co- the cost of the adversary system here, like of, of rigid adherence to the adversary system, the cost of it is a lot of stupidity sometimes. Would right? it have been? I agree. Would it have been better to um, for the appellate court to say? What this is really about is the trial judge abusing her discretion when she denied the motion uh, asking for the appointment of an expert. I'm wondering if it should have been resolved that way. But I I think another way to look at it is that um, if we don't have any experts and the defendant can't really be considered an expert because of this evidence about going back and forth about whether this medicine is needed at all and whether it's dangerous at all and the defendant's interests, then... All we have is one person's word against another. The word of the doctor doesn't seem to be expert and therefore inappropriate for summary judgment. I mean, you could have resolved it that way. Right. But then what would have happened when the case went back? Would it, you know, I think Posner's... I mean, I guess another thing you could have said was that, that, um, you know, and this gets back to the notion of the pro se status of, of prisoner row, that he doesn't have a lawyer who's using lawyerly training and lawyerly techniques to frame and press arguments like, yeah. look, you cannot let this defendant serve as the expert in the case. And right? lawyer, so you need to yeah. strike him as an expert. You can, only rel- you can only look to him for information about facts of which he has firsthand knowledge, like 
what did he prescribe? Why did he prescribe it that way in his firsthand knowledge experience? And what right? must, yes. And so, and so you could say, well, trial judges, um, there are some errors of this sort that are so manifest that even a pro se plaintiff who doesn't bring them up, the error has to be recognized and corrected by the trial judge, right? That I think that's another way you could try to package which go, what's going on in the case. Um, but that, but I think both of these, both abusing your discretion and failing to appoint an expert from the court and a sort of a plain error problem that you should have spotted and corrected in real time as a trial judge, those are actually much bigger asks in a way than what happened here, which is, well, if you noodle a bit on the internet and find some good medical information, uh, it seems like what what Roe said is more credible, what the doctor said is less credible. Think about it like this, though. Think about it. So suppose Do you see what I mean. Suppose. Yes. I mean, suppose you're so Posner's thinking, what if I were the district judge here? Because he sat as a district judge by um, he has many times. Yes. And 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 Judge Hamilton was a district judge. So right. they're both so very they well both aware of what it's like with, to be in that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And um, and you're thinking to yourself as a judge, you know, I've got this person saying, hey, I'm feeling a lot of pain. This is not adequate. I need to take it the medicine in this way. And you've got this doctor saying, no, you, it's okay to take it like every – it doesn't matter. At the very least, aren't you thinking to yourself, I wonder what the label says, <laughs> right? Like, does anybody have a bottle of these pills? I can just kind of look at the label. Like, isn't that the minimum yeah. amount of curiosity you would have about whether this person's report of substantial severe pain is making stuff up for reasons which are difficult to understand why the person would want extra Zantac at particular hours? Um, this is, of course, breezing over the fact that they're eating breakfast at 4 a.m. and then only right. getting – I mean – yeah, well, but, and let me just chime in again with Amanda's point about the prison litigation reform. I mean, the, the, so, so there was a belief in Congress uh, for, for and, and it could be merited, it could be meritless, but but clearly the statutes that regulate prisoner litigation on Eighth Amendment claims and other claims um, is predicated on the belief that some of what prisoner litigation represents is simply prisoners finding a way to entertain themselves yeah. with with yeah. claims that are not meritorious and that waste a lot of time and energy and resources that would be better spent, you know, running the prison adequately and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, well, so, exactly. so you ha- you can't yeah. take that off the table entirely no, no, you if you're trying to implement. So if you want if you want to figure out whether this is a BS case or whether this is a real case, the simplest way to do it would be you know. Boy, I'm feeling a lot of pain. I should take the medicine this way. The doc says, no, you don't need to take it that way. And also is inconsistent about a few things. You say, can someone hand me a bottle of Zantac and let me look at the label? And then if that label doesn't like maybe I'll go to the website and see what they say about how to take the medicine. Like that's what a reasonable person would want to do who is asked to resolve the dispute outside the context of the judicial scope. Right. And I think what Posner is saying is like a minimum amount of curiosity would have led you to want to appoint just get a doctor. Any doctor who can testify about what the label says and how he or she would prescribe the medication. And the point of the Internet research is to demonstrate there's a very good chance that curiosity would be rewarded. Right. 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 In other words, it shows the payoff. It shows the benefit of doing the minimum necessary. What what any reasonable. Per- so if we had just had two people walking off the street, one of them says, you don't need to take that medicine every you know, right before you eat, it's 12 hours. And another person says, yeah, I do. This is, it, I'm in a lot of pain if I don't. And the other person says, you're not in pain. You're just making that up. What would a reasonable person do? You would say, well, g- just give me the bottle. Let me, let me, let me take a look. And okay. They, so what if the, what the bottle says is take it uh, before you eat, if you know you're going to eat something that disturbs your stomach. Um, and um, don't take it more often than two pills a day. 
mm-hmm. um, because it's effective for 12 hours. Yeah. Then you'd say to the, per, you'd say the, to the so-called expert, it says here, take it before you eat. Why, why does it, why would it say that? Well, because it also says it's effective for 12 hours. So in other words, this, why would you, it, your, why? your, your, your impulse, grab the bottle. Okay. What if what's on the bottle isn't crystal clear? Yeah. Well, so, so now we've got a reason to doubt both, maybe. Ah, so we definitely need to have a proceeding yeah. where we get to the truth of the matter. Right. And that's all this was about. This wasn't about whether the plaintiff definitely wins. Understood. Right. It was simply about whether you could summarily say that the plaintiff loses. And, 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 and so what would happen here, right, is you look at the bottle and it says both, as you say, take it, you know, no more than twice in a day, but take it 12, you know, 12 hours. Also, maybe you want to take it before a meal. And then you say... Well, wait a minute. It, it, is it really? And the person says, "Well, it says you can take it every twelve hours, and that means it's effective for those twelve hours." Yeah. And the other person says, "But it also says you take it before a meal. Why would you do that if it's totally effective? To, it doesn't matter when you take it. Right? If it's equally effective at any point right. in the twelve hours, it wouldn't matter." That and then you, you, take you say it. yourself, right. "Huh? I don't know. Um, uh, uh, I'm not sure. So let me hear from somebody else." <laughs> right. Right. In other words, yeah. So, so maybe I would ask the person claiming expert knowledge, "How do you arrive at this expert knowledge?" What makes you think that you can ignore this part about taking it before a meal? I'm, but this is just like the minimum curiosity someone would have about a dispute like this one. Yeah, when the, and, well, and the research shows the minimum that, that curiosity, curiosity would be rewarded. The minimum curiosity in a context where the fact that there are thousands of other disputes waiting in the queue behind this one um, aren't there. Because you, you say it's the minimum curiosity a person would have in a case like this. And I would say friendly amendment. A case like this when they know they have no other cases to worry about. Well, no, I think in, in any case. I mean, so in any case, and this goes back to your point about, about negligence no, you're trying general. to desist it. You're trying no, to take it entirely I'm, out of I'm, the systemic p- flow of I'm, which it's I'm a not, part. I'm not. I'm trying to disaggregate the question from whether the proceedings were, in a sense, negligent. From the que- from the question of whether that negligence is is, uh, is explainable, if not excusable. Explicable, okay. I guess, right? So th- the fact that um, the judge, because of docket concerns, doesn't apply or, or doesn't, re- does, doesn't appoint an expert here or doesn't you know, respond to the minimal curiosity someone would have about facts and situations like this one because of docket concerns doesn't mean that, it was, that the case was not negligent, negligently resolved. It still is negligently resolved. It just means that, boy, that our system is so overloaded that we can't be reasonable in resolving cases. And I think those are two separate issues. I and agree. I, I agree that they're separate. Um, I'm, I'm having trouble with negligence. I'm having trouble with the, this, the, your use of the term negligence as a, um, as a way to describe what happened here. Um, but I, I, look, I think it fits. And, and again, it's not a judgment. About yeah, I'm just the, trying to think about it's it. It's not more. a judgment I'm, about the competence of the judge. I mean, the judge sees the, the right. trial judge sees many cases yep. that could be super smart, excellent. Like, you know, if I, if I were a district judge, I'm sure I would screw up a lot of cases. And, uh, you know, you just you see a lot of them. You're not going to get everyone right. And and uh, and maybe when you kind of read over, if, especially if it's quickly or, or Whatever you read over these things, you got a doctor saying this, and the prisoner saying, and you've seen a lot of prisoner cases where they complain about things, and this doesn't seem. I, I don't know. Um, uh, so I'm not. I'm not making a judgment about the competence of the judge, but I'm making a a, a judgment about the competence with which this case was handled, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And and again, the incompetence of the handling of this case could be totally explicable by the pressures of everything else in the job, but to excuse 
negligence in this case on that basis and to fashion a law which assumes that such negligence is okay because of the crush of cases is to ignore the problem of what to do with the crush of cases. Maybe we need more judges, right? right? Maybe we need rules which allow judges more cheaply to um, uh, uh, satisfy their curiosities about uh, the facts of a case. And that's really what Posner's thing here is like, well, one quick way to sort through the BS here is to do a quick Google search and figure out whether there's anything to this prisoner thing. And if you find there is something to it, you say, huh, well, maybe maybe we're going to need some more factual development. Maybe I should push for more factual development. Right. I don't think that's a totally bananas way of proceeding. Oh, no, it doesn't reach. It doesn't say, well, I found I'm not taking judicial notice of the of the fact that I found in right. some random. Internet. It's it, far from bananas. I, and and I'm, I was trying to suggest it was bananas at all. And, and suppose suppose the judge him, suppose the judge him or herself took Zantac or had a similar issue. And this came up by a happenstance, by a happenstance, the judge may say, you know what? That just doesn't sound right to me. I, I want to hear from another expert. Is there anything wrong with that? Just because the information came through the course of daily life rather than through the Internet? Um, no. And nor do I think there'd be anything wrong with an alternate universe in which the district court judge in this case had at in the first instance when Roe asked for assistance, appointed it. Yeah. Right. That clearly that would have been within the bounds of the judge's discretion to do. Right. Judge Posner has made this point, by the way, about Rule 706 uh, of the Federal Rules of Evidence and the uh, and that it allows district court judges to appoint experts for the court itself. Right. Right. He has made this point many, many, many times about how, in his view, Rule 706 is underutilized. Right. That district court judges ought to be doing much more often what he suggests be done here. Right. That an expert be appointed. And I think that's explicable on grounds that the outcome in a case even on on the one hand, could be totally internalized to the parties, right. but could be unfair. And that unfairness has external effects and just we think people deserve proper treatment. That applies mainly in pro se type cases right. or cases where one party is uh, likely to be uh, uh, treated unfairly if we don't take special steps. But also many, many cases have external effects. Yes. And getting it right can be important for reasons that go beyond the parties. And that's kind of, you know, and that's his, what Amanda wrote about for, in terms of the law. And his opinion in, in this case, where he's, you know, dragging out the heavy guns of Magna Carta, um, it, you get the sense he's very uh, concerned that if, if, if the Seventh Circuit were to gloss over this seeming incident in this case in the same way that the district court judge appears to have glossed over it, that the that his his panel on this court would be participating in the very same wrong that has already like the wrong would be made worse. Yes. And because and then, we would have joined in the wrong. Because and there is there is a kind of soft precedent which will work here. Yeah. You know, this is this would not this this would not be a holding, you know, uh, um, this would not be traditional legal precedent in terms of the you know interpretation of a particular law or, or rule of evidence. But uh, but if they had upheld the summary judgment here, that could be a signal to other district courts that in cases where prisoners complain of severe pain and you have a and you appoint it as an expert witness or, or, you, or you, the defendant serves as the only countervailing uh, witness and that witness appears to use uh, expert opinion, then the case is over regardless of anything else. And right. I think that cannot stand. Right. You know, as as burdensome as prisoner litigation might be, unless you're just willing to say we're going to sacrifice all meritorious claims in order to avoid the expense of dealing with non-meritorious ones. And and if that were done, I mean, that it would it would essentially uh, turn over people who are in prison to the most predatory actions on the part of medical officials in prisons, which yeah. which 
should not happen. If for no other reason than were it to happen, it, working as a medical official in a prison would then yeah. become attractive to people who wanted to engage in that sort of predatory behavior. I mean, so you just can't let that spin out in that way. That can't be permitted. So let's, let, I think we got to talk, I would want to talk more in the future about factual precedent, the way that facts can be their own kind of soft precedent or real precedent. I think that would be, um, that would be really interesting. There was one other thing that I wanted to, oh yeah, this uh, 4 a.m., 4 p.m. feeding schedule thing right. that we first learned about with uh, Josh Lee. At least I didn't know. Did you know they were eating breakfast at 4 a.m. in prisons? I, I didn't, but the, but yeah, um, I, I remember Josh talking to us about that. That was, re- that seemed related to solitary confinement issues, but, uh, but there was no indication in this proceeding that, that I saw that he was in solitary confinement in some way. But no. may, so maybe are all prisoners at this prison and on a 4 a.m., like, 4 p.m.? Right. And, and Josh like, mentioned, of course, the lights out were kind of late. Right. And then they would turn the lights on randomly in the night. Yeah. Remember all that? Um, this, this deserves more attention. But what's – hold on. But what's wrong with um, a prison concluding that for for some – valid business justification, you know, labor costs or, you know, whatever other mechanism it's using to determine that, that, that having prisoners eat, like, surely it would be okay if breakfast is at six and dinner is at six, right? And sh- and With surely no it wouldn't be a whole lot less okay if it were at five and five. So why not three and three? Indeed. And I'm get and so I'm wondering what's the metric in 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 ascertaining right? It's is it okay that it's two a day instead well, of three a day? Well, you know, there's all that research about night shift workers and increased cancer rates and everything else, right? So there's something to well, that's matching. great. I actually didn't yeah. know about that, yeah, and therefore it, there's something to explore here, I guess, factually. But that that um, sort of natural human biological clock rhythms. Um, suppose someone brought this suit, Joe. So suppose one of these prisoners sued and said, you know. Uh, and I'll call it a feeding schedule, the prisoner says, because I'm being treated like an animal, right? right? And I'm being uh, fed at 4 a.m. and at 4 p.m. And this sucks. And it is uh, a cruel and unusual punishment. So surely if there were just one feeding a day that lasted for 15 minutes, it would be pretty obvious that there was, you know, I, I think many people would conclude that that was cruel, somewhat unusual. Certainly if there were a sentence, you know, saying regardless of the feeding schedule, this particular prisoner, you know, uh, you know, this crime was so heinous that you'll be restricted to one meal a day. It'd be kind of weird, right? Uh, so what, what, how would you be – if this suit were launched by a prisoner saying that this – the um, meal schedule is cruel and unusual, uh, goes before Judge Posner, maybe in the district court, and for a week before, Posner himself eats at 4 a.m. and 4 p.m., as do – all of his clerks and concludes that this is unmanageable and uh and therefore you know before dismissing the suit out of hand tried this figured out that it was really awful and then appointed expert you know didn't make any conclusions from that directly didn't say because it sucked for me it's cruel and unusual but rather i found this extremely burdensome i want to hear more about this i'm going to appoint some experts would there be anything wrong with that no i can't think of anything wrong with it um, because the way you ended the story was he he uses appropriate existing mechanisms to try to get to the bottom of the facts about that issue. Uh, ra- rather than right. treat it as meritless out of hand, right. his experience would have suggested to him uh, there there is enough here here 
uh, to get to the bottom of something, to dig more, to find out more. But so you let's use mechanisms to find out more. But you wouldn't think that he had an obligation as a district judge to do that experiment. No, I wouldn't think so. Uh, it, now it might be that that the you know the 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 claim on the prisoner's part uh, sort of sounds silly at first. It may be someone reacts that way uh, because four doesn't sound so much earlier than five or six. Um, and so it, it could yeah, be, I don't know who, <laughs> I think, that, be, I think that's a Joe impression. I think for most people, it sounds a hell of a lot earlier than six. Yeah. I haven't been sleeping very well lately. So <laughs> I'm up, at, I'm up at these times as a matter of routine, but I, but and you're an early riser to begin with. That's true. But my point is that, that, um, if there are, if there are facts to be had in the world from people who do things like systematic research or, or other investigations that produce reliable results. Is there are facts to be had in the world beyond mere anecdote that would that would help you make a good decision about whether or not a four a.m. four p.m. Uh, schedule were needlessly inflicting harm on people? Then, uh, then yeah, I hope we would. I hope we would have the ability to look at it long enough to let ourselves be open to that possibility rather than just, oh, this is silly. Just rush by and not do anything about it. Right. right. Is it, wait a minute. There, there could really be something there. Of course, then again, maybe there, maybe there isn't right. Maybe right. If we, maybe we uh, either, there isn't anything beyond anecdote, in which case we'll have to figure out what to do in that instance. Or when we go and we look, it turns out, oh, that all the systematic knowledge we have indicates that, uh, uh, that there aren't, um, uh, appreciable deleterious effects that come from eating twice a day instead of three times a day right or eating you know it when the lights uh in the sky aren't available <laughs> right. at breakfast as opposed right. to when they are um you know i don't know what any of these facts would say because i don't know any of this research i didn't even know it existed so i'd want to hear what it had to say yeah so much more to say anything else i guess not i don't know uh, people sure can't figure out this kim davis thing can they <laughs> we don't we're, want not, to, we're not going to go there. No, talk about putting me off my breakfast. Oh, the amount of craziness out there over this. People can't need, oh, I don't even know where to start. So we're not going to start. So we're not going to. Yeah. No, we're not going to. But I thought I'd throw that out there because maybe <laughs> listeners want to write in about that. I'm trying to give hooks. I'm trying to give hooks for the feedback that fuels our fires. Right. That keeps this ship uh, rowing. Uh, rowing? No. Going. Steaming. Steaming ahead. <laughs> and let's, uh, with that, we'll, we'll end. And we're going to steam ahead to next week. All right. See ya.